today, may we kneel before the Father. May he strengthen us and fill our hearts with his spirit. May we stand firm and plant our roots deep in love. May we grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. May we come to know that his love is beyond any measure. May our lives be filled with all that God is. So let all praise be to our God. The one who can do things greater than we could ever ask or imagine. All glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus. For all generations, forever and always. Amen. If you've got your Bible this morning, would you please grab it and turn to Ephesians chapter 3 and then stand with me. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab the one that's in the pew in the rack in front of you. Those are still there. Or if you can use it on your smartphone. I forget about that, yes. I debated which way to start today, whether it was electronic or paper-wise. I would like to look as a text this morning for about 154 words, starting in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, and you can follow along. And it was very similar. We saw the, the video, but I wanted it to sink in this morning. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, Paul says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray in the next few minutes that you would allow us to be able to have the eyes to see what your spirit would show us. And that you would open our ears that we may hear specifically that that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us individually. We thank you for what you're doing, and we are excited about the fact that you are building your church, and you are encouraging and strengthening and letting us to understand and to know in a greater dimension. So we give you these next few minutes, and we pray all this now in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. How many of you uh, watched the World Series this last week? Yeah, I should almost ask how many of you did not. Uh, what a monumental game, was it not? Absolutely incredible. And the way it built up to it, of course, I know the media hypes things a little bit and, and they make it sound like this is the only one we've ever had. But frankly, I think this year was pretty significant. 
Now, I know in this neck of the woods, we may not have seen the outcome we really wanted. And I understand that. And uh, I caught the same fever like anybody else, and I watched all seven games. And I watched game seven all the way to the end. And I watched how I, I, my sermon in preparation for this, and I was asked last week to, to pinch hit, I feel like I'm the designated hitter. And I, I guess I'm in the right league then or something like that. But uh, in the midst of that and just asking God, what would you have to say? I mean, what a, what a classic opportunity to take advantage of the World Series. And I had my opener written, and I had to change it. And you can imagine why. I'm sitting there, and my wife's asking if I'm going to come to bed, and I said, yes, as soon as this is over. But it's midnight, and they go into a rain delay. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And I'm thinking, I have school the next day. I have to get ready. I have things to do. But I noticed something that happened rather interesting at the tail end of the game. It was a historic game because you had two teams. One, 68-year drought since they've won the World Series. The other, 108 years. And how many times have we heard about the curse of this and the curse of that? And, And the news picked it all up. When the final end out came, there was incredible excitement. And you know what I saw? In the next couple of days, what I saw was a team that with absolute dignity, as well as even the fans of the Cleveland Indians, and I got to hand it to you, and the fact that so many of them, it wasn't this, oh yes, next year, we got them next year. It was, they deserved it. They worked at it. They congratulated them. They walked it through. But I noticed something that happened on the field. There was this tremendous excitement and thrill and ecstatic and glory that took place because there was a lot that built up to that all that time. You see, why such excitement? Why do we get excited about things? It's because we were made deep inside to have a hero to brag about. Now, I know, I watch, it's not just a guy thing. And sometimes, ladies, you say, well, men are just into sports because they got to have something competitive. And that's true. I know a lot of ladies who are really into sports. And I'll tell you what, God has created every one of us that deep inside there is a yearning, a desire to have a hero to brag about. And none of us want to have a hero that doesn't win. All right? And so consequently, he's created it. Everyone, teenager, child, adult, That we all want something to cheer about. And when ours wins, we celebrate. There's a word for that. And that word is called doxology. Now you may have thought, you may have been in the church a long time and thought doxology is just that thing that we recite at the end. You know, but doxology is made up of two words. Doxa, meaning glory. And that word glory can be used as a noun or a verb. And as a noun, it means a very great praise, honor, or distinction. But as an action word, as a verb, it means to exalt its triumph, to rejoice proudly. And then logos is the other half of that word of doxology. It means to speak. So if we're going to talk about a doxology in the World Series, and I know you didn't think I'd go there, did you? That surprised you, but follow me. A doxology in the World Series means they were to speak up about glory. A hundred-year drought, and you're right. I don't know, most of, well, all of us in this room are not going to be around if they go another 108 years before they win. 
But that's never, never uh, beside the point. We may never sing or shout about athletes or even rock stars or artists or something else or whatever you have as a hero in your particular area, but there's absolutely no denying the fact that God has created us, every one of us, needing to celebrate a doxology in our heart. We were made to worship. And I find it rather interesting. I love that we always come in and do through, go through worship first and to be able to, to literally celebrate and empty ourselves to God in the midst of a service like that. So deep down inside, I believe with all my fabric, that the hero that we were meant to celebrate was God. And what's really exciting, and I don't know about you, but I know for me, what's really exciting is when I watch a sports team really come together and actually overcome many, many obstacles, and as they start to tell the story of all the different players that are part of the Cubs, sorry, then you find out they each have a story that builds up to it. And there's something about that story that to me says it's much bigger than what they are. Who gave them the talent in the first place? And if you look at it from that standpoint, it's pretty exciting. In our text this morning is recorded to one of the Apostle Paul's prayers. Most every prayer he had ended with a declaration, a doxology, if you will. And in verse 21 of the text that I wrote this, read this morning, Paul's spirit is absolutely soaring in prayer. And he closes the first half of his letter in Ephesians, and he's writing this, and you know the story, most of you, is that he's writing it from prison. He's in prison because he's reached out to the Gentiles. He's made known the mystery of the gospel that it's not just for the Jew, it's for all generations. And he's saying in there, I am ecstatic. And in verse 21, and I'm going to do this a little backwards, verse 21, he says, to him be glory. Glory in the church, glory in Jesus Christ, and glory to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Well, I want to peel that like just an onion for just a few minutes. He says, to him be the glory. As I mentioned earlier, glory is an adoration of praise, or it's a worshipful thanksgiving. Yes, you can be worshipful when your team wins. There's nothing sacrilegious about that. And I don't know, I, I don't know about you, but I saw a number of players, even when they had possibly a home run hit or maybe even a grand slam, many of them not only just kind of do this, but worship God. And now, whether they meant it or not, I have to trust that because there are a lot of them that you see that all the time when an athlete goes through that. But the glory of God here is when we experience a state of absolute happiness, gratitude, and contentment. You can't contain it. Your heart just wants to shout out in the words, glory to God. It's like a football team carrying off their coach or grabbing the Gatorade and pouring it over the coach. It's, it, it's something you just can't contain. You've got to express it. Or in this case, as in this week, it's like the celebration of the fact of they won the World Series after 108 years of a drought. But the main reason I think some people feel awkward in shouting out glory to God is it simply to them, it is really hard to see that is God as real as a Ben Zobrist or a Ben Roethlisberger or even a Michael Jordan or a Michael Phelps going back to the Olympics. We can see those people. We can touch them. And for some, the faith may be a bit shallow. And so it's harder to really see the greater good in the midst of that. But the meaning of the doxology is still clear. We all have that need to want to celebrate something. The question is what? 
So the experience of having our heart sore and admiration of God depends on whether or not we truly have the ears to hear or the eyes to see. Exactly what lies behind every admirable thing on earth that stands in the magnificence of our creator God. That experience can only be known to those who realize that past all these heroes is a majestic God and who these little people are just dim reflections. He gave the talents to them in the first place. And it is amazing to see how those talents can literally be put together as a team to experience the joy and happiness of what each of us wants. Well, he said, second of all here, to him be the glory in the church. Let's explore that for just a minute. What does that mean in the church? Because you see, we could say, and I know for some it might shake your faith a little bit, just hang in there. It's really okay. We can actually say, to Ben Zobris, be glory in the World Series at Progressive Field, because he was the most valuable player. We can also say, I'm going to reach back a little bit, to Peyton Manning in the Super Bowl. My Denver Broncos won this year, and I get ribbed all the time at the school because I have kids that, well, we, let's face it, we live in Steeler country, and if it isn't Steeler country, it's, I have a whole bunch of students in my middle school that seem to love the Patriots. And, uh, but this year I told them, Number 50 belongs to Peyton Manning. So we can honestly say to Peyton Manning be glory in the Super Bowl 50 at Levi Stadium. But to God, be glory in the church. And we need not forget that. Verse 10 before, and I didn't read that, but he basically, Paul, what he's saying here is, the mystery of this gospel has now been made known to everyone. And that's worth celebrating, folks, because you didn't understand initially we know the end of the story. We know it a little later. And so we're a little more hesitant at times. But we have to understand that the manifold wisdom of God has now been made known to all through somebody like the Apostle Paul. In this church, well, here, recently we've been talking about who are we and what do we do? Who am I and where do I fit? And these are all great questions. We've gone through this thing called the foundations course, where we've taken four weeks and we've explored some of those things and talked about what are we doing as a church and where do we go. And on week three, I've explored, and some of you have been in there, we've had 130 that have gone through the first two classes, and we're pretty excited about that. But in there, we explore this thing called your motivational gift. There are seven different motivational gifts that are mentioned in Scripture, and they are perceiver and server, a scholar, ruler, giver, exhorter, and mercy. And they each have a bearing on how we think about the church and how we act within the church. You see, we're all motivated by something just a little bit different. And in our motivations, I will tell you, some will see everything as being spiritual. Everything we do here, well, that's what it's supposed to be. No, there are six other dimensions to the church. Some will see it that it's just strictly practical. We have a lot of practical needs around here, and we've got to deal with that. And that's not far-fetched, but that's not the only part. Some see it as being mental. We just need to teach the word. We need to make sure that the word is out. That's yeah, true too. Some see it as psychological. There are people that are coming in here that need encouragement and, and strength in their walk with the Lord, and that would be true too. There are some that see it as being functional. We've got to have structure to what we're doing, and that is true too. How about emotional? They're hurting people in this place. Some of you walked in here today, and when somebody said to you, so how are you today? With that smile you put on your face, you looked at him and said, I'm all right. When deep inside, truth be told, you're hurting, and you need to know that somebody truly cares. 
There are these dimensions within the church. And God wants every one of them, just like with the World Series when you see the teams that really come together. And it's really not always the best team that wins. It's the one who made the first mistake that loses. That's usually what happens when you get to, the, to that caliber. It's also more fun. I don't know about you, but I'm not a real big baseball fan. I like it, but I like it when it gets to the playoffs because then it seems like they mean business. So why don't we just skip the chase and go straight to the end, right? It doesn't always work that way. So we've got to him be the glory, to him be glory in the church, to him be glory in Jesus Christ because if it's not centered in on him, we've missed the point. And it's got to be from generation to generation. Yeah, think of it this way. It's been 108 years since the Chicago Cubs won a World Series. Okay, I'll, that'll be the last time I say that. But now that they have, let's move on. Does that sound good? There's always next year. And it starts the moment the first pitch is thrown out in the new season. Again, we could say glory to them in the World Series in this generation. However, we can also look at some of the men that have shaped the history of even the church. The Apostle Paul, for instance, we're talking about him this morning. Or how about Martin Luther made a great contribution to the church? Or how about in our modern day, Billy Graham? All the most admirable of men are literally only meteors in the sky of history. They last about a third of a second, and then they're gone. But God's like the sun. And generation after generation, he rises on the just and the unjust with his glory. And his glory never fades, folks. It never fades. It comes up and goes down. And it comes up day after day, his glory is there. From one generation to the next, when we pray for those kids, what are we doing with them? We're passing on to the next generation the fact that it is to God be the glory from one generation to the next, over and over again. One thing I notice when I read Paul is that he wrote out and he mentioned his prayers in nearly all of his letters. You really get the impression that for Paul that praying was about as synonymous with breathing. And we thank God that he prayed and he asked for God's grace and mercy again and again. And he prayed in general and it's sometimes very specific as we noted here. If you recall, Paul prayed in Thessalonians, he wrote in there, to pray continually. Now, that one always baffled me as a teenager. How do you pray continually? I gotta eat sometime. I gotta sleep sometime. Well, that's why sometimes we read this and we think we've got to copy it or emulate it exactly to the T, rather than realizing that what Paul was really saying is, prayer is a communal communication between us and God. It's not a one-way dialogue. We don't just go to him every time we have a need. We don't just constantly bark out the, 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 our particular wants and desires. It's a working at it together. And so we explore the many different facets and dimensions of prayer. There are times that I've gone from my office over in the church side of here and walked over because I'm dealing with the school now full time. And so I'm walking over constantly. It's great with this Fitbit. You get your steps in like crazy around here. All right. And if you need a few flights of steps, well, there's a few in here. So it works out really well. But I'm telling you what, there's not a time that I haven't walked this building that I am not praying and asking God for his wisdom, for his insight, for his whatever it may be. Sometimes it's an issue and sometimes it's not. But Paul said to pray continually. It's to have that recurrent prayer, that conversation with God throughout the day. 
He told the Philippians to pray and not worry. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> We're human. And how many times do we say that? Well, you know, be anxious for nothing, he says. Or be, be anxious about, don't, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, present your requests to God with thanksgiving. Paul behaves the same as he recommends by praying instead of worrying. That's that conversation. God wants to know. If you're worried about something, tell him about it. It's, it's, that, it's that communication that goes. But basically what he's saying in the midst of whatever crisis we may be facing is we're to keep our eyes on him no matter what. You know what? The backbone of this message this morning is nothing you haven't heard, but I'm going to tell you, it's something that we haven't all lived. And what I feel like the Lord is telling us is it's, it's, it's so important for us that no matter what we're going through, no matter the crisis, you define the crisis. It doesn't matter. Where do we keep our focus? No matter what happens. It's that simple, folks. It's absolutely that simple. And I fight, and I fight the same thing that you do. You've heard it said before. <laughs> I've seen this, I don't know, ever since I was a kid. I don't even know when I first saw it. God helps those who help themselves. You ever heard that saying? I've heard that said many times. In fact, I was, um, I was in an auto parts store a number of years back, and I saw this, this saying right behind them in the counter. And it said, God helps those who help themselves. The government helps those who don't. And I thought to myself, really? And then I look over to this side, and I see another sign that says, in God we trust, all others pay cash. <laughs> and I thought, that is theology wrong. That's the way it is. But that's what happens in our society, is we hear certain things, we don't always live it out, and then we get it twisted just a bit. But you see, the truth is, if we seek God's help, we do it because we cannot help ourselves. In God, he helps. Why is he able to help? Because he's omnipotent. He is full of power, and it's infinite in power and authority. So why is Paul shouting glory? Why does he get so excited? You know, you see somebody that gets over-exuberant and you almost want to, what's, what's going on? What did I miss? And that's exactly what he's doing in this particular portion. So what does he know that we don't know? Well, his prayers are written out and they're done and they're hyper-specific, which explains what we're dealing with even right now in that whether it be as a nation or whether it be whatever. But Paul wrote out his prayers for a reason and I want to look at it. And I want to encourage you this morning with two of those that he mentioned here. And I'm going to expound on it, and I'm going to bring it right back around. In verse 16, he says, I pray that out of, your glory, out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It seems rather sane to consider that when Paul prays that God will give the reader strength, he does not wish them to rely on their own strength, but on God's. Paul has written extensively explaining that man in no way is good enough, but we need his grace. He does not tell the people to get stronger. Just get stronger. You'll make it through this. It's okay. But he calls on God to give them his strength in the inner being. Let me explain it this way. This happened to me, as I mentioned. Wednesday night, I was up late, and I've learned something about getting old. And uh, I've also discovered that over time, in order to make sure that we live healthy, you need a certain amount of sleep. And as you get older, you need a certain amount of sleep or you get cranky. And guess what? Wednesday night, I didn't get that sleep. 
Well, Thursday morning, I got high school chapel in here, and I was getting ready, and I'd done my planning and preparation, and I'm driving in, and I am, you know, you go to bed late, and you get up early, and you know how the eyes are, they hurt, and, and you're thinking, oh, it burns, and I'm driving in, and I'm saying, God, I need your strength today, and I felt like the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, have you not even been listening to what you've been studying? No, why? Am I supposed to? I'm just supposed to preach it. I'm not supposed to live it. I'm kidding, Okay. And in the midst of that, I, so I, I didn't pull over on the side of the road. I started mentally going through my notes, and I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, it's strength, strength. We're praying for strength. Oh, yeah, don't strengthen me, so strengthen the inner man. Well, what does that mean? And I felt like the Lord said, why don't you ask me to show up in chapel today? I thought I did. Well, and you do that, and I realized in the midst of this, we're not exempt. All of us are fighting that same thing, and that's what he's saying here, is that we've got to realize I didn't need my strength. I mean, let's face it. He's not going to suddenly infuse me with, you know, uh, this extra battery power of just suddenly I got three hours of sleep. It doesn't happen that way. You, know, you and I both know the physics don't work that way. It is the inner man that he's talking about. And it's just as real as our physical body, I discovered. We all understand the importance of strength in our physical body, but many are exceedingly weak in the inner man. Let that sink in for a second. Paul asked that Jesus would live in us as believers, just as Jesus had prayed himself in John 14, in 23, when he said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What was he saying? That Christ may dwell in our inner man, that we may be strengthened as a result. I think this is another one of those fallacies. God helps those who help themselves. That's a myth. No. God helps those who say, God, strengthen my inner man. Be with me that I may be your person for what takes place. That word dwell comes from an ancient Greek word, which means a permanent home. If I decided, or say I'm representative of Jesus, and you're going to let me come live in your house, well, some of you are going to say, well, there's the couch. Others are going to say, we got a spare bedroom. No problem. Make yourself at home. It, it depends. Basically, picture that, if you will. Jesus is coming into our heart, into our lives, into every fabric of who we are, and he says, I want to be there permanently. I don't want to make it seem like I come as a stranger or as a guest only when you need something. I want you to understand I care about every detail. I care about every crisis you're going through. I care about every celebration you're going through. And so basically it comes then to them in a sense in a respect so deep and so great as to constitute a practically new arrival. And remaining where he so arrives, not as a guest, but as a master resident in his proper home. The glory of the indwelling Jesus is something for us to know and to know by faith. It is there for us, but it must be taken through faith. You have your Bible and you have your knees. And they need to use them both. And that's really what he's saying. Hebrews 10, 17 says, Faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So how do you strengthen yourself in faith? You do it by getting into the word. You do it by praying the word. You do it by allowing him to stay that focus. Why do we need this spiritual strength to let Christ dwell within us? I'm going to tell you why, because I've discovered it. 
And that is because there is something within every one of us that resists the influence of him and the indwelling in Jesus. It's called the flesh. The flesh wants to, but it's weak. The spirit's strong, and we've got this thing going on. And the only way we can bridge that gap, as Paul says here, is that let there be the dwell, Christ, Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. And what he's really saying is not just through general faith, through your faith, through our faith, through my faith. That's what he's saying. He wants to dwell there. And how do we know that that happens? It's, it comes from the sovereign gift of God that says, I've made the provision. It's already there. All you have to do is receive it and walk in it. And how do we know you do? Because you see the reliance. You see the submission. You see not animated action. It's not fake. It's not phony. It's not an exaggerated aspiration. But it's a welcome acceptance. So much so that some people would say, as Paul did, prayed for his strength, that we would say, glory, glory. He's given me the strength to understand exactly that I, I can't make it on my own. Now, the second prayer he prays comes out of the second half of verse 17. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp, I love this, how wide, how high, how long, how deep is the love of Christ. And know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the measure of the fullness of God. The meaning seems to be that they should be rooted and grounded, not in their love for God, that's simple. In fact, we know for a fact that Jesus said when he was questioned, what's the greatest commandment, Master? And he said to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he spins it right around and says, and the second one's just like it. And that's to love our neighbors ourselves. And we know for a fact that if we don't demonstrate the love for one another, we really don't have the love for the Father. And that's what he's saying. So he's really getting at, what Paul's getting at here is that we need to have a strong love for one another. He uses two expressions, rooted. It's like a tree that takes its roots, and, and, and I'm not, I don't have a green thumb, I'm going to tell you, I kill everything. So if, if you ever want to bless me with a plant, well, kiss it goodbye, because it's not going to make it, okay? It happens. When we had housewarming, people brought over stuff, and it was like, I don't care what I did, we tried everything. It isn't going to work. I'm, I'm beyond hope, all right? When you think about it, you transplant something, and you got some roots. There's one thing I do know about it, roots don't just happen overnight, unless they're weeds, and then they're terrible. Okay, you know what I'm talking about there. When you talk about a tree that's supposed to produce some fruit, it needs some deep roots. Those roots don't happen overnight. We want a quick fix. Frankly, it takes hard work. It takes crises. It takes testing. It takes going through things. It takes one another. But we've got to build our roots down deep so that they go into the soil and so that they twist around the rocks so that they cannot be uprooted. So that when the crises come, when the tough times come, when the blows seem to hit us and we don't quite understand why me, we suddenly realize that my roots have gone down deep and they're there for a reason. And the second one he says is that we're established or grounded. It's like a building that has settled. I have yet to find a building that doesn't have some kind of a crack somewhere from its settling. But I can just imagine the picture I get is that something that has so settled as a whole that it will never have any cracks or flaws in it in the future of its foundation. And you can tell because it's been tested, folks, and it's solid, and it's not going anywhere. Well, in verse 18, he says that we may have the power together with all of God's holy people. See, we can't do it ourselves. We can't go through a crisis all by ourselves. And the last, if you think you can, you missed it. 
Paul's asking us that we might be able to understand it in community, every dimension of the love of Christ. In the context of building strong families, it takes the family unit. And if you think you can do it on your own, I'm going to tell you what, there's not a one baseball player that can win a World Series all by themselves. It takes a team. It's all there is to it. There are some sports that are that way, but not that one. Verse 18, he says that we would have the power with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. You know what that tells me? That tells me that the love of Christ has dimensions and that it's measurable. It's more so than just a nice little answer that we sing about that. To a great many religious people, the love of Jesus is not a solid, substantial thing at all. It's a beautiful fiction. It's a sentimental belief. It's a formal theory. But to Paul, it was real. It was substantial, and it was measurable. And let me demonstrate that by this. The love of Jesus has wit. You can see how wide a river is by noticing how much it covers over, and especially when it goes over its banks. God's river of love is so wide that it can cover over my sin and your sin. It covers over every circumstance of life so that we know then that because of God's love, all things can work together for good for those that have been called according to his purpose. When I doubt his forgiveness or his providence, I am narrowing that river down of of God's love. Just as his love is so wide as the world, we know from John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. Well, it also has length. When considering the length of God's love, we can ask ourselves, when did God's love start for you? And when does it end? It has length. These truths measure the length of God's love. Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says this, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. An everlasting love. That's pretty cool. That's measurable. The love of Jesus has depth. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 tells us how, about how deep that love goes. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant. Now that's pretty low. Oh, and coming into the likeness of a man and being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death and even to the point of dying on the cross. You can't go lower than that, folks. You can't go lower than being crucified for something you didn't do. That's how deep his love goes. Well, what about his height? The love of God has height. To see the height of God's love, we must ask ourselves, how high does it lift me up? It lifts me up to the heavenly places where I'm seated with Christ. For Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 says, He has raised us up together and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. Can we really comprehend then the width the length, the depth, and the height of God's love. To come to any understanding of the dimensions of God's love, we must come to the cross. You've got to come to the cross. The cross pointed in four ways, essentially in every direction, up, down, and both sides. God's love is wide enough to include every person, every one of us. God's love is long enough to last through all eternity. God's love is deep enough to reach the worst sinner. And God's love is high enough to take us to heaven. That's how it is. But it's one thing to understand it here. It's another thing to know that love. And that's what Paul's getting at. As he goes on in verse 19 and he says, and to know this love that surpasses the knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of God. 
That's what he's referring to. So how do I understand this love? It comes through experience. It's experience. And how do you get the experience? It's the crises. It's the tough times. We do not build character in our lives when everything's going right. I don't know if you figured that out yet or not. I have. It's through the tough times. Why do you think Paul said, consider pure joy when you face trials of many kinds? Because it develops perseverance and on down the road, which develops your faith. You see, Paul wrote of something that we can know of. This isn't speculation. It's not guesswork. It's not emotions or feelings. It's something we can know. And I can tell you in a nutshell that uh, Dr. Kevin Washburn made a statement to us. Uh, we were at teacher's convention a week or so ago. And in there, he said, you know, there's, in order for us to fully process and understand and know something, and I thought, boy, does he know I'm speaking this Sunday? And when he said that, it takes more than just memorizing something, although there is some, you know, some benefit to memorizing things. And some things we memorize just by hearing it in our background. That's what advertising does. But other things, we memorize it and we move on. But in order for us to truly know something, it involves some critical thinking, which means that we've got to test it. We've got to walk it through. We've got to interact with it. We've got to analyze it. We've got to dialogue with it. That's how we know. If we don't, if all we're stuck in is just memorizing Scripture over and over again and letting it go at that, then we're stuck in dogma. And he wants us to move even farther beyond that. So in verse 19, he wants us to be filled with the fullness of God. Not just a little bit, the whole thing. Colossians 2.9, he says, For Christ is the fullness of deity that came in the flesh. And now he's saying, but you need that fullness. That's the exciting part about this. To be filled with God is, is a great thing. But to be filled with the fullness of God is even greater. But he says here, but to be filled with the fullness of God, all the fullness of God. So there's those two prayers. He's praying that we have the strength to know him, the strength that it would strengthen our inner man. And the second thing is that we would truly know the love of God. And how do we know that? Because it's demonstrated, it comes out. And this is the part that builds right to this. And this is the part that I want you to hear. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than you can think or imagine, to him be glory. I don't know about you. What can he do? What can God do? You know, if Paul was pastor in this church, he'd probably be saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this and do this and do this. And he goes and prays. And I can just hear the Lord saying, you can do more. Really? And he goes back and he figures it out. And he says, well, look at, look at all these people I've got. Look at the gifts I've got here. Look at the talents here. Look at all this. Look at, we can put all this together and we can do this. God says, I can do more. I can do more. Now, I don't know about you, but I have heard. I've been in this church for over 17 years. And I've been hearing for a long time that God has plans. What are those plans? The only way we achieve those is that if every one of us surrenders our will to his and literally says, God, I want you to do more. I want you to do it through me. I want you to strengthen my inner man. And I want you to help me to understand the love of Christ. What he's basically saying is, keep your eyes on him and let him flow in us and through us to a greater measure. I don't know about you, but I can dream pretty big. And I can measure it pretty big. But Paul says, to him who is able to do immeasurably more. More, folks. Do you understand that? 
That's why he got excited. That's more exciting than that team winning the World Series. You see? Because he's saying, I got plans. I got plans. And nothing ever catches God by surprise. So I have a question for you. What's your crisis? What are you currently going through? Because if you're not in a crisis, you're about to. Our nation, is it our nation? Is it our country? Because God's still going to be God on Wednesday morning. No matter what happens, nothing catches him by surprise. But at the same time, we've got to remember. I don't know about you, but I'm getting excited. I read my Bible and I look through it and I see in the last days what's going to happen. And we're seeing it. It's getting dark out there. And he's wanting the church to be ready. And it's not going to be ready if our roots are just sitting on the surface. He wants them deep, folks. And it takes community. It takes building together. It takes getting into the word. It takes that dialogue. If all we ever get, and I don't know how else to say it, but all we ever get is a nice Sunday morning message, which is, which is great for the Holy Spirit to speak to us. I'm not diminishing that. But if this is our meat, it's not enough. We need to be in it on our own and we need to be interacting with one another and we need to be in Bible study and we need to be whatever it may be. Every one of those things he's saying. So understand, in order for us to become a better person, it's time for us to grow up. That's what he wants. We're not as good as tomorrow, but we're better than yesterday. So when somebody says, how you doing? I love to say, I'm perfect but I'm getting better. Do you know why? Have I obtained perfection? No, by no means. But we're told to be holy, to be set apart for his plan, for his purpose. Crises don't last, but God does. Would you stand? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to share your word this morning. And I thank you, Lord, for the very fact that you spoke a word to us, and that is to keep our eyes on you. And that no matter what we do, no matter the crisis we face, whether it's personal, whether it's financial, whether it's corporate, whether it's as a nation, God, we want you to rise up and to be glorified. We want to be able to say and cheer for you, our major hero. And so continue, God, to, to build your church and to do what you're doing and to get excited about that. And just like the Apostle Paul, we, we thank you that he wrote this down, that we can expound on it and look at it and realize that may you be glorified from generation to generation and that you would be honored by everything that is done. For that, we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.